0: Hi, my name is Akshita Mathur, and welcome to the second season of TIF Talkies, an audio initiative by the India Forum. In this season, we'll be engaging with some of the themes and questions that were raised at the COP26 last year, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the topic of climate institutions in India. For this, we're joined by Aditya Pillai, who is an Associate Fellow at the Initiative for Climate, Energy and Environment at Centre for Policy Research in New Delhi. His uh, recent research delves into the history of India's climate uh, governance architecture, state and adaptation politics, and also the emergence of climate federalism. Uh, Mr. Pillai, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Uh, Hi, Akshita. It's lovely to be with you uh, this morning. Uh,
0: So to start with, uh, Mr. Pillai, at COP26, India announced five promises to work towards a greener future. but, you know, there does remain some confusion as to how these will be actually achieved on the ground. Uh, drawing from your own research, could you briefly discuss what climate institutions are and why building them is important for conversations on climate action?
1: Right, thanks. Uh, that's an important question. Um, maybe I could just skip past the point about COP26 for a second and come back to it, but then start by sort of framing the big picture of why climate institutions are important and what they are, right? Hmm. Um, One way of thinking about it is that climate institutions are the rails upon which the train of climate policymaking runs. Okay. Okay. So uh, with rails, you don't really notice they're there, but they're essential for all forward progress. Um, And secondly, they also help sort of smoothen the bumps um, and institutions sort of help smoothen um, the bumps in uh, what can often be rough political terrain uh, when it comes to climate politics, right? So uh, with that sort of metaphor out of the way, more concretely, um, um, it, the way to think about is think about these interministerial committees that sort of stretch across the government mm-hmm. of India. Um, the ministries themselves, what sort of staff do they have in it? What sort of... Um, procedures do they have within those ministries and also uh, what sort of forums and bodies exist between the government and external stakeholders right so businesses civil society organizations so those forums and bodies are also important institutions that exist outside the government or para-government so
0: that's
1: that's more a more concrete way of being able to think about it Um, uh, but there are also within these committees and bodies also various procedures and processes are incredibly important, right? So who sits at the head of the table? What sort of information is used? uh, When they deliberate? Who speaks and when? Um, Who else is at the table, right? So for example, our scientific um, bodies at the table, our vulnerable communities at the table. So there are all of these questions about composition and power. That mm-hmm. also very important in determining what comes out of these bodies, right? Um, so the focus is has I mean traditionally and understandably given the emergency of the cl- climate crisis very much been on uh, policies like net zero uh, and electric vehicles, um, but it's not really been on the institutions that are creating these policies, right? And how do they do it? So I, I essentially, just to frame it, I have two arguments. Um, um, first, the institutions determine the sort of policies that come out. Uh, and the second argument is that the institutions determine whether these targets and policies are, are achieved, right? Um, and in and, and key, the institutions can actually help incorporate science and analysis. Um, the type of institution that determines the policy... Uh, must also be fleet footed to circumstances to be successful they must have accountability built into them so whether anything happens once a declaration is made ultimately comes down to the institutional dynamics really um so you know in our in our research we sort of went across the national government for about 30 years and looked at all the cross governmental coordination bodies strategy bodies all the new units within ministries um, and we try to understand what was going on within the government of India. So uh, that that's essentially the setup for like why uh, for what institutions are. Um, and, and your second the second bit of your question about you know, how good institutions can help in achieving things. Um, just very concretely, there are three things they can do. And uh, uh, we, we wrote in the journal Science about this uh, a few months ago. There three things, the three climate things, climate problems these institutions can solve. Um, the first is being able to create a long-term strategy. Now, a- everything in climate politics today is about long-term strategy, right? The direction you're taking, the pathway, so on and so forth. Um, it's, it's an institutional question. Secondly, when you're implementing the s- sort of coordination you do, because climate is a very interesting problem because it stretches across every sector of the economy right so from finance to farming you have to coordinate the entire ship of state and economy to one single numerical target uh, that is denominated by carbon right so um, and the third part is when you do something like that you're going to get political winners and losers um, and you have to be able to compensate them firstly you have to be able to hear them and then secondly you have to be able to compensate them so that's also are your institutions open enough um, uh, on that front right so um, specifically i mean your your question about the cop is interesting um so with the cop we had this bunch with uh, these five um declarations that india made including a net zero uh, declaration, but then one of the key features is a lot of ambiguity, which I think you'll agree uh, about. You know, energy versus electricity, whether requirement meant gen- generation or um, uh, uh, it. It's, it was one of those things where it felt like the institutional processes, if they had been more, if they had been slightly more robust, would have decreased the amount of ambiguity. Yeah. Um. Yeah. um uh, there might have been more debate about this before this happened because there wasn't a lot of public debate around the net zero and so on. Um, so we might have had a clearer idea about what the target was, the time frame, the various pathways to get there, uh, and also other bits. Right, I was I'm not sure if there was systematic consultation with India states, for example. Uh, or um, a very detailed documentation of what the social and ecological consequences of various pathways were. So those are the sort of things that an institutional setup, a a, a robust institutional setup can give you. And I think that's quite important, given that we're now talking about complete societal transformation.
0: You know, you mentioned at the starting that you went in your research, you actually went to institutions and saw uh, what was happening inside. Could you give an example, like a brief example of, one such committee or institution that you that you guys uh, had looked into.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, we looked at several of them. Um, I think maybe the listeners would be sort of more interested in the most important mm-hmm. of them, and so that's called the Prime Minister's Council on Climate Change. Um, and this is something that was set up, I think, in 2007, and the original National Plan for Climate Change, and so on, all. Came from this body. It's a very interesting body. It was chaired by the Prime Minister himself, um, Manmohan Singh, at the time. And it had a range of ministers from across the government, but it also had fairly significant representation from civil society and expert organizations. Um, and the evolution of the National Action Plan on Climate Change, if you go, sort of go through the minutes and talk to people who are in the room, um, it was a very complex and textured sort of discussion right so there were uh, ideas that were coming from outside government there were various government priorities particularly about international positioning and you could sort of see this whole thing come together in this in this um, very interesting uh, mix of priorities sometimes it was a battle sometimes it was far more complement complementary um, and and um, ultimately, from that came the National Action Plan on climate change, which to date is the central policy framework uh, uh, for better or for worse. So that's that. So it was this sort of thing that we sort of tried to uh, get to grips with. And so over time, you see that these things don't really last, right? So the PM um, and the various other bodies we looked at—they sort of have moments of exuberance and they produce a lot of stuff and they capture the headlines and then they sort of fade away. And uh, there's this there's this up and down nature to the, the the life of an of a climate institution in India that that um, uh, that actually I think is a fairly important characteristic uh, and it may not always be the case elsewhere. So,
0: yeah. Right. Uh, so, could you give us a brief historical overview of how climate institutions have been shaped in India in the past three decades and whether political conditions have played an important role in their transformation?
1: Right. Yeah, I think it's all all politics. Uh, maybe it's <laughs> a bias uh, that I have. But... Um, so we did this paper we sort of studied 30 years of India's institutional history Um, uh, Navroz Dubash my colleague at CPR and I worked on this and uh, what we found is international politics has a very big role to play in shaping Indian institutions at the same time shifts in domestic attitudes towards climate change also change uh, the shape of the institutions Uh, so it's it's these two forces that sort of combine, um, and we looked at things from the ni- from the early 90s, in 1992 to be precise, um, to the to about 2019, 2020, which is when the paper paper was sort of finalized and published. Um, and so we divided that stretch uh, over three decades into about four periods. Um, and the first the first period is between the early 90s and the uh, uh, mid-2000s, so about 2007. And this is is the period of Rio uh, 1992. And there's the UNFCCC comes into the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is sort of put together. Um, And India is very specifically focused on making sure that equity and justice principles lie at the heart of the global climate conversation. So there's this construct called common but differentiated responsibility, which is used to differentiate uh, between developed and developing and least developed countries. Um, and India was very vocal in sort of making sure that we don't carry extra responsibility or compromise our development because yeah. we didn't we didn't emit the carbon that yeah, caused this yeah. problem, right? So this entire period for a decade and a half was india focused on that so the institutional framework at home reflected this right so it reflected this political priority so essentially it was the environment ministry and the ministry of external affairs who had a fairly loose sort of coordination and sort of informal relations between the ministry that drove the agenda setting and so they would go to the cops and and represent india's case and did that very effectively um, and and it, it was sort of central to uh, India's uh, positioning. And between uh, 2007 and 2009, that's our second period. Um, it's a very short period, but things really do pick up there because suddenly international politics changes and developing countries sort of turn to uh, developed countries. So the rich countries turn to developing countries and say, we need you to play a bigger role on mitigation. So this, So it's a big change, right? And um, you have to remember that this is also the beginning of the Asian century, so to speak. So, India and China are really looking to sort of stake their claim on the global high table. Um, And India comes back and says, okay, we're actually going to do things now uh, and be proactive about the climate agenda because it's sort of now central um, or becoming central to the international conversation. It wasn't, definitely wasn't uh, all the way there that. Um, And so we sort of come back and we create what I was talking about earlier, the PM's Council on Climate Change. So interministerial body with a lot of external stakeholders. And that body comes up with a national action plan on climate change. Um, And one of the interesting things about this is you'll notice that it's the PM's Council. So the PM was directly involved and chaired these meetings. And that's an important signal, not only to the rest of government but also society at large, that you know you have the prime minister chairing uh, a council. Um, it's being
0: taken seriously.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and they <laughs> met very regularly, and they were trying to pass these various policy uh, uh, policy packages that they call missions. So it's, uh, there, there were eight missions. Um, in different sectors, so they met regularly to pass these uh, uh, eight, to formulate and then uh, approve these eight missions. And there's also this very interesting body within the PM's office called the Prime Minister's Special Envoy on Climate Change. Um, it's a senior diplomat, uh, uh, Ambassador Sham Saran, who um, was in charge of the international portfolio, so uh, handling international climate change, in addition to Getting the NAPCC, the National Action Plan, up and running uh, domestically, right? And he he played an important role um, it, with the solar and energy efficiency, um, um, solar and energy efficiency missions uh, that were put together. Um, and but this sort of all changes then in the next period. So between two thousand nine and fourteen, um, the center of gravity shifts from the prime minister's office to the environment ministry and this is primarily because of the emergence of a very proactive environment minister by the name of jairam ramesh uh, who um sort of tries to take charge of both the international agenda um and um and the the domestic domestic agenda and this is a period of great institutional uh, uh experimentation a lot of new institutions emerge in this period um one of so uh, in this transition from the PM's office to the Environment Ministry, the Prime Minister's uh, office of the Prime Minister's Special and Envoy closes, and the Environment Ministry assumes charge of the sort of climate portfolio in a way. Um, and this really captures, I think, this moment's interesting because it captures the tension between not the tension, but the the sort of constant shifts between the PMO and the Environment Ministry. So there. Are you know there are periods where the PMO exercises more of a role, the Environment Ministry exercises. So it keeps going back and forth. You know, um, um, and 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 there are trade offs here, right? So the Prime Minister's Office is um, is uh, an office that is immensely powerful, but not staffed to deal with um, uh, climate change specifically, but also a range of I mean, given the number of issues of national importance that come up on a daily basis, um, there's also this question of sticking with sort of one issue over time. The Ministry of Environment, of course, has some capacity. It has this long institutional memory under the allocation of business rules it determines which ministry does what in the government of India. It is in charge of climate change. It has climate change in the name. Ministry of Environment Force and Climate Change. But then at the same time, it has to be able to direct other ministries to do certain things or convene them um and so it's it that...
0: the authority
1: exactly yeah exactly so then yeah. when it comes yeah. to the say finance ministry or power ministry and so on um it it has to enter these sort of elaborate negotiations does not really have the authority to sway them to its interests or, the, or climate interests um and so that's really the tension um anyway just sort of going back to this period uh all the new great new institutions were coming up. So there was the climate planning went down to the states. And that was actually one of the most significant things uh, that happened. Um, so the states were asked to come up with state action plans on climate change. Um, and that 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 was an important moment because it was the first time the states were thinking about climate change, what they could do and how they could marry it to their developmental agenda. Um, there was a new scientific institution that was not long lived. Um, uh, uh, which is an Indian network on climate change uh, assessments. Um, it was supposed to be an Indian version of the IPCC. That sort of, it, it produced some reports, but it was not long lasting. And then the third important bit was the planning commission got involved with climate change. So there was actually an expert committee uh, on low carbon uh, uh, growth that was created at the time and produced a a report, but then the report was produced just before a change of government and the planning commission itself was dismantled. Um, And notably, there was actually a moment there where uh, they proposed a climate change law, um, which did not find any political support. But the whole idea was, can we make the NAPCC slightly more um, uh, suspicious yeah enforceable slightly more systematic so we have interim goals um and it's all reported to parliament and so on but it didn't take off right so um and then after that you have in the rest of the period you just have coordination problems uh Ramesh uh, moves to the rural development ministry and then again uh, like i was saying earlier the central gravity sort of shifts back to the pmo then um so they create something called the executive committee on climate change it's like this body of very senior bureaucrats chaired by the principal secretary to the pm um and so that was supposed to coordinate the implementation of the napcc also the fact is the napcc by then was fully formulated and they had to figure out a way to implement it so they needed a bureaucratic body to implement it so that's um that's what happened uh, then and then we move to the present period so it's 2014 to the present um, so that's uh, the current government um, and and as one would sort of expect, a lot of the institutions of the old regime sort of fell into disuse, right? So the PMCCC was sort of reconstituted in 2015, but it only met once, um, has only met once since. Um, the, ex- the the Executive Committee on Climate Change the Body, I was just telling you, this bureaucratic body, uh, was supposed to implement the NAPCC, has, as far as I know, um, the last time I checked, had only met twice since 2016 uh they might have met uh uh, uh once more or so but uh, it's 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 not i don't
0: not I have, as often as it should have been probably
1: yeah i don't for an issue like climate and something as complex uh, one would think that it would meet more often right, <laughs> right yeah. um and and um, um i the center of gravity i think uh, remains firmly Within the PMO, Niti Aayog, and the Environment Ministry, so it's not cross-governmental uh, coordination bodies that are the first filter, but these organizations then um, that then sort of more or less determine the scope. Of course, the ministries themselves play a very important role in coming up with policies, right? So uh, the, the key feature, actually, and the interesting thing that's been happening over the last few years is there's been a proliferation of climate policy. I mean, it's not as though climate policy has fallen behind, right? So if you go by India's submission to the UNFCCC, it's, its report, the biennial, biennial update in 2018, it has something like 35 mitigation actions, right? So there's obviously a bottom-up organic evolution of climate policies that is go, that's going on. But then there's no institutional intermediation there about the direction in which all of this is going. What is the sum of the parts, right? Uh, What are the targets and so on. So it's happening at a ministry level. It's happening at a political level, but it's not really happening at an institutional, uh, coordinated, strategic sort of manner. It's It's, quite scattered,
0: dispersed, not scattered.
1: Yeah, it's dispersed. I think each ministry is, is sensing opportunities um, and coming up with things, uh, which is how it should be. But then how do you tie it all together with a bow is the question, right? Um, and so now it's actually, I think, becoming very clear that there are limits to this. And our papers actually call the limits of opportunism, uh, which is opportunistic actions from, the, from various ministries are good because it's, you know, it's creating great climate policies. But at the same time, things are starting to change, and it uh, now, for example, you have the announcement of a net zero target. You have a whole slew of twenty, thirty targets now, five separate targets, and so how these different pieces of the puzzle actually come together is now far more important than before. They can't just exist in a disaggregated, discrete manner. So that's that's really, I think, the 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 key uh, point of the current. Uh, Moment. So yeah, that's the that's the broad history. I hope I sort of uh, captured that. Yeah, that
0: yeah. was that was very informative. But like, and I recognize there is no straight answer to my next question. But how do you think, uh, based on your research, can India form a climate institution like a main climate institution framework, keeping in mind these shifting structures of power, uh, national politics, which also keeps changing, and you know all these related constraints?
1: Yeah, that's, um, that's true. I think you're right to frame that question that way in the sense that it is a very, very specific sort of process uh, yeah. because each yeah. country will do this very differently. So hmm. at CPR over the last three years, one of the things we've been working on is this project to study climate institutions in eight large uh, countries, so eight major, uh, uh, eight major emitters. Um, and... So we sort of looked across this. So uh, uh, we this is all available um, online. So it's all open access. Um, This volume was edited by Navroz, um, and we sort of the India paper that I was just talking about, a whole bunch of other papers on the UK, US, etc. All the case studies within this within this volume, right? So all of this is freely accessible. But one of the things we found is you know. It's so diverse, the sort of institutions that are out there, there's no one common format, right? Um, so China has this very top-down system, so the entire bureaucratic machinery is seized by the orders from the, the, the Premier Council, um, that sits at the top of government. The UK has a very different system, so it has a lot of independent analysis by this one body called the UK Climate Change Committee, And there's a lot of accountability procedures with parliament and the public and so on. Um, And the the U.S., for example, because they haven't been able to get anything through the Senate for a while, they actually are seeding climate capacities into the bureaucracy. So instead of focusing on legislative, they've come to the executive branch of government and sort of putting uh, different climate nodes in there to sort of make sure each sector has some sort of climate transition story. So... Uh, oh okay it's very yeah it's very interesting there's a lot of, lot of diversity um, mm-hmm. um but the key is i mean one of the key stories that we tell in that special issue of this journal is that it's it's really the institution setup you end up with is really a product of your political environment uh it's a product of the bureaucratic traditions you have and these things sort of are as old as your government sometimes older you can't escape them, really. And then the third factor is the international pressures because climate is, in many ways, a top-down political issue. Um, and so the sort of international system effects uh, uh, have uh, an effect on the institutions that you create. So, um, so the question with India, what sort of institutions can India form? Um, it's it's a good question. I think the the, the way to ask it is, how do you move beyond the current NAPCC construct? Uh, and the reason it's important question is because the time feels like it's right, right? The politics seems to have shifted after COP26. There's the whole net zero um, conversation, which is completely open. It's, it's, it's uh, carte blanche. Um, and there's, um, I think, a sense within government that climate can also be an immense opportunity uh, in mm. in pushing development, so it looks like the politics is now more favorable for institutions, and also on the other hand, and, and on the other hand, I mean the international pressures are only sort of going to increase over the coming decade. I don't see them actually decreasing. It feels like it's very different from you know the stuff we were talking about just in the early 2010s or the late 2000s, right? Um, so you know it feels like there's a space for credible for a credible body, sort of authoritative, and also with some deliberative functions. Um, And the question is really, how do you design it? And I think there are about two design principles that are worth thinking about. The first is really boosting analytical capacity within government, right? So what is the brain of the operation? What are the brains behind this? Um, Who's really thinking about climate change in government on a regular and systematic, uh, in a regular and systematic way? Um, And, you know, I, I can't stress this point enough um, because in our paper what we do is we sort of count across government of India um, wh- how many bureaucrats um, and specialists were working on NAPCC implementation, right? And we just looked at within the ministries and the grand total across the eight missions of the NAPCC, well, seven missions because one didn't have information available, was um, 62 people. 62 uh, bureaucrats and administrators, right? And this are valid up to 2019 or so. Um, and most of these individuals have multiple responsibilities. I mean, they're dealing with many non-climate sort of issues within their home, say water, electricity, agriculture. There's so many other things going on. Um, and so what you get out of this is these different climate policies function radically different ways, right? So some of them take off, some of them right, don't. Yeah. Uh, and it really depends mm. on whether there's enough the policies policy well designed, whether there's enough traction within society for that policy. Um, so boosting, boosting capacity within government is important. The second design principle, I think, is really about how firmly can you entrench this, right? So is there space for a law? Uh, how do you create accountabilities? Um, Uh, within this institutional framework, right? So how do you make sure the executive is held to account? How do you involve the judiciary, right? So what kind of role will parliament and standing committees play? So the institutional structure really needs to, you know, take all of that account. It can't really just be, you know, this ministry does this in this time period. There's a whole institutional structure that spreads out across branches of government. So there's, there's, there's a need to think about this. So, yeah, I think I, I, uh, we've written about this in more detail, but I think these this, these are the two sort of high-level things that come to my mind. Yeah.
0: yeah, right. So specifically, how would the system of climate governance be distributed between the center and their state? And are there currently any frameworks that delineate, even very generally, what the scope of work is to be done by each level?
1: Now, the question about states is very important. Um, and it's very important mm-hmm. because the delineation between the central and the states essentially comes from the constitution, uh, in what the climate responsibilities are. Now, the constitution, of course, does not recognize climate, but it divides many climate salient areas between the central and states in a way that makes a high degree of cooperation between the central states inevitable. Um, so the states, for example, control agriculture, water, local government. Um, the center controls mines and minerals, petroleum, nuclear, and then you have the concurrent list of the constitution where both sides have responsibility, and that includes very important things like forest and electricity, right? So major major sources of emissions or savings, uh, um, and and other things like wildlife and so on. Um, so. Uh, the the cooperation between these levels is almost inevitable. So you kind of have to design, when you think about institutional questions, you also have to think very hard about how do you design a structure that gets the central states to cooperate and work to the same goal, but at the same time allows the states enough room to experiment based on their local political conditions. So it's a tricky balancing act, right? Um, The I mean, the key what we have so far is the the state action plans on climate change. We mentioned earlier um, the SAPCCs, but this obviously has its problems in the sense that I'm not sure it's had a real effect on development within the states. In the sense that there are no, I mean, there are no rigorous evaluations of the SAPCC framework uh, in the recent past, so it's hard to tell. But my senses has been no real effect. It's not really changed states' development pathways and climate positive ways uh, that's what I assume um, and and there were also issues with the with with sort of um, uh, how the sapcs came about right um, there were and we documented this at CPR um, there's it was founded on incomplete data so these plans were sort of in a way they were playing to yeah they were playing to a sort of set template there was no funding especially from central government. Um, so there the were a bunch of issues with the SAPC framework and, you know, and, and now they're being, um, they're being redone in many states. So we'll see what the next stage has to offer. And um, I would think that many lessons have been learned over the last few years. Um, but the key with the, uh, just to frame it, you know, uh, the, the, the question about the center and states and how they play nice on climate The way to look at it is India is a very top-heavy federation, right? And and within the federalism literature, um, uh, some call it a quasi-federation, others say that cooperation between the center and the states is almost an inevitable part of the design of the constitution because the center really has a lot of the share of financial capacity, bureaucratic capacity, agenda-setting power, um, and it's very different from, say, the de- highly decentralized federations like the U.S., Australia, Canada, you know, the more classical models, right? So obviously, the way the climate institutions function here will be very different in India. So you have to think about it, that's the starting point, point. Um, and the, so in a way, the center has to create an enabling framework for the states, right? And so it has to pull various fiscal levers. Um, So, things like the centrally sponsored schemes, right? So, there's a huge amount of money flowing through centrally sponsored schemes down to the states. How can that be made greener? Um, the finance commission's actually been quite progressive in terms of the tax devolution to the states in, in sort of incorporating climate com- concerns on the margins. How can that process be accelerated? Can the SAPCCs be funded by the center? What quantum is available to the states? So those are important questions. They're also beyond money. I mean, things like how do you coordinate various sectoral transitions? Uh, how do you get central universities and agencies like... Um, to technical, especially technical agencies, to uh, collaborate with the states. I mean, you have to boost these central agencies like the IITs and the IITMs of the world. You have to boost right, their yeah, capacity yeah. because not every state has this sort of thing. So that's that's really. I mean, it's it's a it's a very tricky question. This and yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Vast. so um,
0: right. So going on to the next question, uh, of course, achieving carbon neutrality involves. Constructing institutions that go beyond just you know policies of energy and emission, and also take into account like specific things like urbanization, industrialization, and even job creation, perhaps. So, based on your research, what are some of the recommendations that you have for us to take the first step towards building these institutions? I'm I'm, I'm supposing this answer will kind of overlap with the previous answers, but is there anything specific uh, that you think we should start with?
1: Yeah. No, right. I mean, that's that's a good question. Um, and um, it's, I think, an important one and something that the climate community needs to debate. Um, we have tried to sort of make an offering here. We wrote this policy brief called Building a Climate-Ready Indian State that offers some sort of specific principles. Um, but this is something that I think needs, needs a much wider conversation as well. So, um one of the key things when we were trying to think about the the design here one of the key things is a lot of other countries operate their institutional basis of carbon budgets right so they have some sort of net zero goal usually not usually but often baked into a climate law and they say every five ten years this is our target and then we build institutions to implement that but that's not the case here we don't have carbon budgets so that's obviously not a feasible model India's question is very, very different, right? So India is still growing. It's not peaked. Um, So the, the, the entire problem revolves around the choices we make, not really the constraints we impose on ourselves. That's really the institutional burden here. Can we make good choices? Not can we have very binding restraints on ourselves? And at the end of this, the whole... The idea is can we lower our emissions peak, right? Because we haven't peaked yet, and if you lower your peak, then you get to net zero in a much, much uh, easier way. Um, and so, um, the the key questions are: What sort of pathways do we follow um, when we when we determine this long term trajectory, right? So there are so many important questions. About whether we're going to go down a dense urbanization route or try to stimulate rural demand. Um, are we going to use EVs or public transport? So, all of these sort of binaries that sort of crop up in our development trajectory, on our development pathway, um, those are the things that they, this institutional framework needs to chew on and come up with really concrete evidence based ideas on what the ideas uh, on, on the pathway we should take. Um, and so, the way we approach it is you need a credible way of processing choices. And it comes back to that point I made earlier about what is, where are the brains of this operation? Right? So we tried building that brain. Um, and, uh, this is not to say that the ministries aren't doing a good job within their own purviews. Um, so within the electricity ministry, within the renewable energy ministry, within the environment ministry, they're all doing, very climate progressive work but then the question is at an economy-wide level um, what really comes up what really puts uh, things in context and determines these really big macro directional choices right and um, we call for the creation of an independent expert body called the low carbon development commission Um, and this this body would have multiple experts uh, from different sectors and offer suggestions about these various pathways. Uh, we would like it to be backed by law. Um, and we would like it to be as deliberative as possible to so discuss with as many stakeholders before coming up with a suggestion um, on on a pathway. Now this 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 body is non-executive in the sense that it can't dictate to ministries what they should do um it, but it comes up with compelling ideas right and part of the weight it carries is that it's consulted widely and one can assume that there's some sort of consensus behind the ideas it comes up with right so it it has this analytical function and a deliberative function that two sort of work together to create uh, to give some credence to the ideas this body comes up with um and and just to be clear you cannot lord over the ministries or our system won't permit it. So I think whenever there's a suggestion and it's come up in conversations, whenever there's a suggestion, let's create this body that sort of um, it exists above the existing structure of the executive branch of government and di- can dictate to it something like a Supreme Court type body for climate. It's just not going to work, right? Because the, yeah, the, there are so many issues. With it. So you have to find a way of playing... of, of of creating something that's with the grain of climate politics. And that's really the key challenge. Um, and so the next question, is why would a ministry listen to a body that doesn't have uh, executive authority over it? right? And, and to answer that question, we did a couple of things. We said it should have accountability mechanisms built in. So within this legal framework, again, coming back to what I was saying earlier, um, we thought it would be good if ministries could report to parliament uh, on a regular basis on what their plans are and then after a while report on what uh progress they made on those plans right and this is all completely transparent um and it it, it feeds into the public through this channel right so public involvement is sort of guaranteed through the media through civil society organizations and, and their comments. Um, and that I think is an important within a democracy that's a very important channel of uh, of incentivizing action within government. The second part is uh, the LCDC, this analytical brains being the operation sort of comes up with a cumulative assessment of India's progress and whether it's meeting its medium and long-term goals, which then obviously will attract scrutiny. And then the third bit is for for ministries and agencies to listen, there have to be some sort of financial incentives. And that means changing the way uh, budgetary allocations are made and having some weight, perhaps. uh, There are obviously different ways of doing this, but perhaps some weight to the mitigation potential, the adaptation potential of a policy, right? Um, Which is currently obviously not a filter through which the monies of India is passed through. So... Um, and, 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 and the, uh, yeah, and, and, and the final bit is really that you have to improve capacity. I mean, you know, I was talking about 62 people, you obviously need to have specialized capacity in the ministries. It's, uh, it's something that's happening organically, but there probably needs to be a sort of systematic effort to this. And, um, the implementation arm, the executive committee on climate change, um, definitely needs, um needs to be sort of uh, revitalized reactivated um, and uh, the Ministry of Environment obviously plays a very crucial role It's the nodal ministry it handles our international negotiations so that'll still continue to be a very important part of the institutional framework so that's that's really uh, the outline of of, of this this uh, institutional structure that we try to put together very much mm-hmm. cognizant of the political constraints as you mentioned right
0: yeah mm-hmm. Uh, So extending from this, uh, are there examples of countries, which you have studied already, uh, uh, which have developed very effective governance mechanisms, which you think uh, would be something that can be applied to India?
1: Right. Yeah. So from that project over the last three years, we developed a very intimate understanding of at least seven other countries. Uh, and a partial understanding of some more uh, countries in their institutional frameworks. Um, one of the key things that really jumps out to you is how much this is, this is institutional questions of work in progress across countries, right? Um, when we started working on this, the US didn't have much because I was doing the Trump time. Now, as I said, each department is now ceding this capacity. China actually went from this very powerful uh uh, body called the NDRC, the National Development and Reform Committee, and cre- then moved to a new ministry in this time. So a Ministry of Ecology and Environment. So there are a lot of changes and countries are experimenting with different things. And I think it's important to remember, yeah, exactly. It's it's there's going to be it's going to be experimental to start with. Everything that I just said, um, in terms of the L C D C low carbon development committee and so on, is it'll be a starting point and then it'll change over time it's hard to call on one model that India can follow. We, um, we were definitely influenced by the UK's, um, by not, not all of the UK system, but parts of the UK system, because it fit with the political context here in the sense that if you have credible, clear information that's coming from an expert body, which the UK body. has, mm-hmm. yeah, an independent okay. expert body, like the UK Climate mm-hmm. Change Committee, Um, that could have an influence, has very many effects on the UK political system. Um, um, and it it is fairly powerful because it's credible and it's very popular as well in the sense that it's, it's widely, um, used by the public civil society and the media. Um. And the second part was the accountability systems in terms of reporting to parliament and being held accountable by parliament. And, and this has sort of become a, a model globally. The UK Climate Change Act from 2008 is, is something that has been diffusing now to very many places. And, in, and, and there are places India can learn from, right? So just at COP26, um, they launched an international climate council network which has all the climate committees and bodies across um, across the world. I think it's, I'm not sure exactly how many there, are, but there are uh, maybe about two dozen different bodies, all, all at different stages. So there's there, that's a resource that India could potentially tap and learn lessons from because it's an active experiment, right? Um, but I think just sort of talking about the key features that we probably need to focus on. One. Um, again, to stress that this needs to be a stable institutional architecture, right? This is not a one-year, two-year problem. So the institutional structure has to be built for the long haul. Um, And one of the ways we approach that stability problem is by saying that it needs to be a consensus type institutional system, which is very open to various stakeholders, right? I mean, you really need to take on board, for example, coal transition states, Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh. Right? Do you have an institutional structure at the center that actually systematically hears all the, I mean, we know about the core transition stage, but there are many, many, many different stakeholders that will be affected over the coming years. Um, and so for stability, you need to have that sort of porosity within government. Um, the second bit is you have to be able to create compelling narratives, and that's something we saw across these countries. Right? So the just, just transition narrative really took off in South Africa. Um, and a lot of their climate politics is around this, mainly because it addresses not only the jobs issue, but also the race issue. So it, the just transition narrative is tied very much into... Um, South Africa's long and troubled history with race and sort of uh, the promise of renewal and new opportunities for Black South Africans. Um, And the third bit is um, that this institutional structure should should be aligned with politics. um, And you can't really create something that is an immediate transplant from another country because honestly, within a year, the it's it's just going to collapse right or it's going to be put in the freezer and and government of india is littered with committees commissions and various agencies that have not aligned with the politics so that's really a key key question as this conversation progresses
0: uh thank you so much mr palle that's the end of the uh, episode actually uh, but thank you so much i feel like this is very informative especially because Climate change is a very shiny topic, but not a lot actually know how this would be achieved in like real terms. So, uh, thank you so much for talking about this with us today. Uh,
1: thank no, thank you very much for having me. Let us present our work um, and and for focusing on this institutions question because we do feel that this is such an important issue. It's not as glossy um and and attractive as other ones but yeah it's the underlying substructure of the whole whole machine and so thanks thanks for focusing on it um and 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 yeah look forward to all the other series you're going to do uh in uh, all the other episodes you're going to do in season two
0: thank you so much mr pillay Thank you to our subscribers and listeners as well for tuning in. This is the finale of the second season where we looked at COP26 and the climate discussions around it. Uh, We will be back with the next season soon, so do follow us on our social media channels to stay updated. Thank you.